extend another word of thanks. Um, Rob said you have the delight in hearing me. I'm not sure about that. But uh, we are delighted to have um, RUF campus minister at MIT, Solomon Kim, has come. And that's why we're able, even with the absence of our pastor, to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So thanks, Solomon, for, for joining us, coming out on a chilly morning and uh, uh, sharing God's table with us. So our passage today contains some of the final exhortations of Paul's epistle to the Philippians and continues one of those that book's principal themes, the theme of joy. Outside of some of the Gospels, no New Testament book talks about joy and encouraged Christians to rejoice more than this letter. So with that, hear now the word of God from Philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to bless it as we uh, hear it proclaimed uh, this morning. Gracious God, we do come to you and to your word, for you are the source of truth and beauty, and you are the, the source of joy and peace and contentment. We ask that you would uh, take these words as we uh, study them together uh, this day, write them on our hearts, teach us not only in mind, but inscribe them on our wills, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. Lord, we confess that, uh, like the Philippians, um, we too uh, so often feel anxiety. Uh, we feel the pressures that the world puts upon us. So we ask uh, that you would teach us, like you taught them through the Apostle Paul, to learn the true source of joy, the true source of peace, the true source of contentment that only comes 
from the power and the fruit of your indwelling spirit. We ask that spirit would instruct us this day. Take these words that you spoke to the apostle and speak them into our hearts this morning, we pray. We ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Joy, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, connotes a vivid emotional pleasure arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction, the feeling or state of being highly pleased or delighted, exultation of spirit, gladness, delight. On a Sunday morning two weeks ago, I got to witness firsthand such an experience of delight, which for me left a lasting image that represents the essence and exultation which could only be labeled pure, unadulterated joy. What, might you ask, was it on a Sabbath morning that left me with such an enduring impression of happy satisfaction? It was the first time I saw our dog, May, go out into the snow. Now, you're probably thinking, I was going to talk about something, you know, deeply profound or intensely spiritual. Sorry, I'm not that deep, um, not that reflective. Nevertheless, when I now think of joy, I can't think, stop thinking about the moment we witnessed May encounter deep snow. And for the lack of a better description, she simply went nuts with delight. With a glee in her eyes, she leapt and chased snowflakes. She bounded around the yard, diving into snow banks. She drove her snout into the ground, making little snowballs that then she ate with great relish. She sprawled herself on the ground, making whatever the dog equivalent of snow angels are, and she resisted every urge, every tug on the lead when we tried to get her to come inside. She wanted to, all day just to go out for just a few more fleeting seconds to relish in the snow. If she could have talked, I think she would have said that she wished to play in that snow forever because it brought her such joy. Now, why we might laugh at the humorous exploits of a very happy dog, uh, her reactions mirror so much of how human beings express joy in response to particular moments of our lives. We rejoice at the birth of a child after nine months of pregnancy. We rejoice at the celebration of a marriage and the start of a couple's new life together. We rejoice at the experience after a hard-fought campaign or at the end of a long season. We rejoice at the successful completion of a difficult task. In all of these moments, human beings demonstrate the emotion of joy. But the joy that Paul describes to the Philippians in chapter 4 differs from these other joys, not in the expression of the emotion, but in the source of it. Normally, our experience of joy is circumstantial. It's our reaction to a birth, a wedding, a victory. But the feelings that Paul describes in our chapter, joy, peace, contentment, are experienced apart from or regardless of our circumstances. The Greek word for joy that Paul employs here, Cairo, is etymologically related to the Greek word for grace, charis. 
And its usage here captures Paul's conception of a uniquely Christian joy. When Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice, Paul is talking about a joy that, like grace, comes as gift. It does not originate in ourselves. It's not reliant on our circumstances. It's a joy that one can possess at death as well as birth, amidst failures as well as successes, during hardship as well as prosperity. The context of the book of Philippians emphasizes the alien nature of this joy that the apostle commands. Paul, when he writes this book, is in prison. He's responding to a gift that the Philippians have sent by Epaphroditus to support his needs while he was incarcerated. The Philippians themselves are experiencing persecution and opposition that causes them great fear and anxiety. Indeed, we know when Paul visited Philippi, he and Silas were arrested, flogged, and imprisoned. And the Philippian church remained in that same city, facing the same opponents. Nevertheless, when Paul encourages the church to rejoice always, even amidst its afflictions, he himself models his own experience of joy even while in chains. The book of Philippians and indeed Paul's other epistles testify to the paradox that real Christian joy can be found in the midst of sadness, affliction, and care. As one person stated, Christian joy does not come and go with one's circumstances. Rather, it is predicated altogether on one's relationship with the Lord and is thus an abiding deeply spiritual quality of life. It finds expression in rejoicing, which is an imperative in our text, not an option. How can one be joyful always, even in prison, even amidst opposition, even in great need? Paul's answer is that joy and peace and contentment come only from the sovereign hand of God, who rules all things well and through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. The simple phrase, in the Lord, provides the essential key to joy in every circumstance. No matter what anxiety or what circumstances uh, we face, there's still a defiant, nevertheless, in the Lord in whom we rejoice. So this morning, we will take Paul's uh, injunction to rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I will say rejoice as the principal exhortation that shapes how Christians pray, how they pursue virtuous ideas and actions, and how they learn the secret of contentment. So first, we see how Christians are called to, to combat anxiety through joyful prayer. Now, verses 4 through 7 contain four admonitions, four commands. Rejoice. Let your, your reasonableness or your gentleness be evident. Do not be anxious and present your request to God. And at first, these four uh, commands seem to have little to do with one another. But as we'll see, they work together to establish the source of a Christian's confidence and joy. 
This command, rejoice always, is immediately followed by a second injunction, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now you'll see, if you're looking at an ESV, there's a footnote there, and the footnote indicates there's a little bit of uh, uh, difficulty in translating the exact sense of this word into English. Our ESV uh, gives us the option or, of saying gentleness, reasonableness, gentleness, not two words we usually put together. So, so what's the, the word getting at? While these two words initially might not seem to go together, uh, the term is the first of several allusions to Greek philosophical values that Paul makes in our passage. The Greek word that Paul deploys here usually refers to the attitude that a person in a superior station should exercise toward their inferiors. The Stoics, in particular, use this term reasonableness or gentleness to capture an attitude of dispassionate kindness where the expected response would be retaliation. In the same way, Paul says, a Christian should exercise gentle forbearance toward everyone. We might say in a modern idiom that we shouldn't sink to the level of our opposition, but demonstrate an ability to rise above the fray. Not only should Christians respond to everyone with gentle reasonableness, but Paul also commands that they should not be anxious about anything. The clause, do not be anxious, can refer to being unduly concerned about anything, but it's often used in the New Testament in places where persecution is faced by believers. Now, between these commands to be reasonable and to not be anxious, there's this phrase that's kind of floating there, the Lord is near. And if you look at commentaries, there's lots of debate. Does Paul intend rejoice in the Lord and let your gentleness be evident to all for the coming of the Lord is near? Or, because the Lord is always near, do not be anxious about anything. Even our translators uh, seem to struggle with this. Notice how they include the Lord is at hand in verse 5, but grammatically, it's part of the sentence that makes up verse 6. <laughs> uh, they kind of don't know what to do with it. Uh, does it further confusing things? Is the nearness of the Lord, is that a spatial descriptor? The Lord is in close proximity. Or is it a temporal reference? The coming of the Lord is near. So these are the questions people struggle with. And the answer I came up with is yes. <laughs> yes, we are to uh, be let our reasonableness be evident to all for the coming of the Lord is near. And we're because the Lord is near, we have cause to not be anxious about anything. Because the Lord is near and because Christ is coming again soon, Christians do not have to stoop to the level of the world, responding to evil with evil. But God's nearness strengthens them to repay hateful words and actions. Because of the indwelling of the Spirit, believers can boldly approach the throne of grace, confident in the power and love of their Heavenly Father. It is the emphasis on the Lord's nearness that makes these, this stoic virtue 
most unstoic. <laughs> um, stoic philosophy encourages one, quote, to become an independent man sufficient to himself and in need of no one else. Paul, in our passage, emphasizes the exact opposite. For him, reasonableness, gentle forbearance, the lack of anxiety, not fearing anything, comes not from self-sufficiency, not from independence, but from dependence on the presence and power of God. Notice how these two commands of verse 6, one negative, one positive, mirror each other. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The antidote to anxiety, Paul's telling us, is prayer. Where the Stoic seeks to repress emotion as something irrational, the Christian embraces the reality of human fears and seeks to alleviate them through a reliance upon God. Prayer is a fundamentally reorienting practice. By its very nature, we acknowledge human insufficiency and God's supremacy. Paul here talks about thanksgiving and supplication, and you kind of think of these two different um, aspects of prayer. Each one forces us to recognize there's a person more powerful and capable than oneself. Prayer is a fundamentally relational act. It doesn't enjoin self-sufficiency. It enjoins divine dependence. As one commentator put it, by telling us to let our requests be made known to God, Paul is presupposing, or is not presupposing, that God does not know our needs before we give voice to them. He's calling for a full self-disclosure in God's presence in a way that humbles us. By expressing our specific request to God, we acknowledge our total dependence upon God. The preposition uh, to in the phrase to God pictures this kind of prayer as a movement or orientation toward God. Prayer orients our lives. It directs our lives. We grow in our relationship with God through prayer by presenting our specific needs and desires to Him. All that we possess, even life itself, is gift. And gratitude should be expressed constantly to the supreme giver. Even in the midst of our trials and tribulations, we rely not on our own strength and reason, but cry out to God to sustain and deliver us from evil, even as we just prayed. As Calvin said, a true patience does not consist in presenting an obstinate resistant to evils or in the unyielding stubbornness which passes as a virtue with the Stoics, but in a cheerful submission to God based upon confidence in his grace. Notice Paul's promise results to our prayers when he tells us to... Um, uh, to 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, be, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He doesn't then say, and you'll get everything you want. <laughs> no. The promised result is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is not auto-suggestion, a form of self-hypnosis that produces some sense of, of peace. Uh, a number of years back, um, I read a book called The Unlikely Disciple. Uh, it was the story of a student at Brown University who, instead of doing a year-long study abroad, decided to do a year at Liberty University in Virginia, a Christian college. For him, he, he, he reasoned that um, liberty would be just as a strange place as some place in a foreign country, being with Christians. And it's a, you know, as you might imagine, someone from Brown, he, he critiques a lot of the evangelical Christianity that he encountered at Liberty. But he also talks about how he came to appreciate certain practices like prayer. The problem, though, was for him, it was simply the act of praying itself that he enjoyed. For Paul, prayer is not you're, the, the point to pray isn't because prayer in itself does something, but because prayer brings us deeper into our relationship with God. And it's through that relationship that we, this relationship with what Paul says in verse um, 9, the God of peace, it's that God of peace who can bring alone the peace of God. Prayer opens us to God's peace by forcing us to articulate our needs before God and to express our absolute dependence upon him with an attitude of constant thanksgiving and complete trust. When we pray with that attitude, the focus is not at all upon what we're doing or will do, but on what is God is doing and what God will do. God can act and does act beyond our best abilities and thoughts. The peace of God that results from prayer is our fortress, a protection. The word there uh, that the English translated into guard is, is literally garrison. Uh, it's in the Philippian audience uh, to whom Paul is um, writing would be well familiar because there was a Roman garrison stationed in the town of Philippi. The garrison is a protecting force close at hand to defend the civilian population. Similarly, the peace of God is this protecting gift from God. It's not something humanly devised or independently achieved. Like joy, peace is a fruit of the Spirit that transfers a quality that only God possesses in himself to us. The practice of prayer opens our hearts to receive the joyful peace of God because God alone is the God of peace. Now, in verses 8 through 9, Paul rapidly transitions from the joyful peace that comes through prayer to the joyful presence of God that comes through virtuous living and thinking. 
Paul commands the Philippians that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul sets before the Philippians eight virtues, encouraging them to think and subsequently to practice such things. Now, what makes this list uh, distinct and in many ways unique in Scripture is how, how it bears such a striking resemblance to uh, the list of virtues you could find in Greek literature at the time. As one person noted, it's almost as if Paul had taken a current list from a textbook of ethical instructions and slapped it into the book of Philippians. The repetition of the word whatever emphasizes the expansiveness of our search for things worthy of contemplation and emphasizes how God has woven truth and rightness and beauty, etc., into the fabric of his creation. When Paul comes to the end, when he has that word excellence, again, that is a particularly stoic um, value. It's a favorite subject in Stoic thought. It means, often refers to excellence of character or exceptional civic virtue. As the Stoics did, Paul commands us to contemplate such truth, beauty, and excellence everywhere we find them. But the difference is, the purpose of the contemplation isn't, uh, doesn't end. It, it takes you somewhere. It takes you outside yourself. It doesn't fortify yourself for self-sufficiency. It drives you to, uh, to God, who himself is the measuring stick for all of these virtues. How do we know if something's true? If something's honorable? If something's just? If something's pure? If something's lovely? If something's commendable? If something is excellent or praiseworthy? Paul says us to seek these things wherever we find them. How do we know what's what? We need a standard, and the standard that Paul gives us is Scripture. Paul shows us this principle when he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. These verbs, learned and received, refer primarily to his teaching of the gospel. And the verbs heard and seen refer to the paradigmic, uh, the you know, modeling that Paul does in his life. Call, Paul calls us, the followers of Christ, to be attentive, reflective, meditative thinkers. To develop a Christian mind and character requires a lifetime of discerning and disciplined thought about all the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. As Paul says elsewhere, we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Consequently, you can see how we're to, while we're to pursue these things, we're to go after um, these things, we're to think about them, we're also to turn away from those things that aren't true, that are dishonorable, that are impure. Again, he, he's teaching us uh, as we consume information about our world, as we encounter truth elsewhere, 
we are to subject it to the standard of God's word. And we do that, most of all, through meditating on the word of God. It's the most worthy and it's the most able to produce the thoughts and attitudes which are described here. As the psalmist states, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray for your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Again, this might be a stoic list of virtues, but Paul is saying we pursue them to a different end, and we're able to pursue them from a different um, source of power. The purpose of contemplating these verses is to put them in action, as Paul himself did, and he calls the Philippians to be imitators of him, just as a couple of chapters earlier, he called them to be imitators of Christ. These worthy things are not just to be abstract considerations, but are to be closely connected to the way we live. The word of God is not just to produce holy thoughts, but they must lead to holy actions. And that's the power of the word of God. It's the power of the word of God to change people's hearts and to direct them to what is the truth. And that enables them to see and encounter truth as they find it uh, in creation and in the world as God made it. When I think of the power of, of the word of God to produce change, I always think of the story of um, A.W. Pink. Uh, some of you might have read uh, various books by A.W. Pink um, about uh, 150 years ago. Uh, Christian um, thinker, pastor, theologian. But before he became a Christian, he was raised in a Christian household, um, but he, uh, when he was in college age, uh, became um, deeply committed to a school of thought known as theosophy. Yeah, you don't encounter theosophists very much anymore, do you? <laughs> um, but theosophy was, at the end of the 19th century, was this um, esoteric, uh, pursuit of religion um, through contemplation of philosophy and the idea is you contemplate these things and you, you have these ecstatic, almost out-of-body experiences. And he was pursuing and he was lecturing on, on theosophic principles and living with his Christian parents. And one night, he comes home He's going up the stairs, and his father just says one thing to him. There's a way in a man's heart that seems right, but it leads only to death. That was all it took. He didn't come out of his room for days. That one word of God revealed how empty all his vain philosophical principles were. How worthless, how empty. 
And Paul is, is saying, don't pursue those empty things. But pursue whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And not just pursue them, but to put them in action. As always in Paul's theology, theology or, or, or philosophy is not separated from living. Pure thoughts should lead to a pure living. And in the second chapter of this book, Paul provided a vivid description of this in the person of Christ. When he, he, he goes to, he, he dresses, uh, if, you know, flip back with me. Uh, in chapter 2, he's you know, giving these ethical commands. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant to yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's taking Christ's life and example and using that as the model of how their lives and how their thinking should proceed. We don't do these things to try to earn the favor of God, but the work of God in us brings these things out. We do them to become more and more aware of the joyful and comforting peace of God. The promise of the presence of the God of peace explains the promise of the peace of God that he talked about in verse 7. When the God of peace will be with you, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's only God's presence that brings peace and allows us to experience joy in pursuing virtue. Finally, in calling the Philippians to rejoice, Paul uses himself as a model. He doesn't just use Christ as a model. He points to himself. And he, he describes how he rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, You've revived your concern for me. Just as in verse 9, he enjoined them, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So now he wants the Philippians to see and hear his own joy in response to their gracious gifts to him. Notice, however, the source of his joy isn't the temporal bodily needs that were met, real and dire as those needs were. As a prisoner of Rome, Paul affirmed that he suffered and lacked bodily ascensions. But here he denies his great joy arose from the change of circumstances that the Philippians' gifts might have, might have um, created in his life. Lots of people look at this um, part of the letter and talk about Paul's thankless thank you. <laughs> You could, you could see how someone would give kind of a cynical reading of this. Uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, now at length, that you've revived your concern for me. 
where have you been? <laughs> Some people read it. Um, you know, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need. So you gave me a gift, but, you know, I didn't need it. That's how some people uh, read this position, uh, this, this principle. Um, but, but that's not what Paul is saying. He's not dissing their gift. <laughs> um, one, notice how he says, you had no opportunity. Um, and that word revived uh, is a, um, it's a, a word um, from, from nature. Uh, again, kind of think the way things go dormant in the winter. And in the spring, they're revived. Like, you don't go looking for a, a peach from the tree <laughs> in January. <laughs> it's, it's out of season. And that's what he's saying. You didn't have an opportunity. But when the opportunity came, you revived your concern for me. And it's in that action of their heart, not in the thing they did, in which he rejoices. And here, again, he turns to another Stoic philosophical um, virtue, the idea of contentment. The goal of the Stoic was that a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the foursome circumstances. Seneca said it this way, the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is and is reconciled to his circumstances. By the exercise of reason over the emotions, the Stoics encourage people to be content. For the Stoic, emotional detachment is essential to reach this contentment. But Paul is taking, again, a popular term used in the world and flipping it completely over. Because notice what he says here. What's the source of his contentment? I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His contentment is not the product of self-sufficiency. Here he's teaching the Philippians how to be content, how to be joyful, irregardless of their circumstances. To not ride the roller coaster of fear and joy, but by reliance on the strength that comes from the indwelling of God's spirit to any situation that one can be content. And again, he, he's saying here, these things aren't equal to one another. Facing plenty and hunger, those are two very different things. Abundance and need, Two very different things. Being brought low and abounding, two very different things. It's interesting the word he uses there, to be brought low, we might say humiliated. And if there's one thing a Stoic couldn't stand, it was to be humiliated. But Paul has used that word earlier in the book. We just read it a few moments ago. Christ humbled himself. Let himself be humiliated by men. Why? Because he didn't seek the praise of men. He, he did it out of his love and relationship with his people. And Paul is saying, you too can face humiliation 
just as you face praise. It's not that these two things are different, but that the presence of God and God's spirit in us makes us indifferent to each, um, uh, to each position. Contrary to the philosophy of Stoics, Paul did not seek to live in reason in order to be anesthetized to physical and emotional pain. In this book, he freely relates his tears, his great joy. He's passionately involved in pouring out his life as a sacrifice for others, as a servant of Jesus Christ. His contentment in any and every situation flows out of his life in Christ. Paul's thoughts begin and end with Christ. He begins this paragraph by recounting his great joy. And then he ends with this exclamation of the wonder of Christ's empowerment in his life. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He claims no power in himself. All his strength is in the one who empowers him. To be found in Christ is worth far more to Paul than anything else, as he says in chapter 3. Everything else is rubbish, but to be in him, um, to all his activities, all his emotions, all his thoughts are within the sphere of Christ's presence. As he said in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. I am confident in the Lord. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings. It's this intimate communion with God that is the source of Paul's strength and joy. And it's that kind of power that he's saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's not saying, I, I can now suddenly dunk a basketball, which I can't. <laughs> my brother sent me a nephew uh, a video last night of my nephew dunking the basketball. I was like, yeah, he barely made it but I've never been in the zip code, barely. <laughs> um, but here, it, it's on, um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's referring to where this joy comes from, where this peace comes from, where this contentment comes from. How can you face plenty? How can you face need? How can you avoid the temptations of abundance? You can only live this way through the strengthening power of God. Now, for some of you, you might uh, have come today because in our modern world, you appreciate the traditional values that Christianity holds to. The principles, how we uphold laws that with ever-increasing frequency, our culture is causing, calling into question but Paul isn't presenting you a philosophy. He's calling you to a relationship. He's not enjoining you to practice these virtues out of your own strength. He's calling you to turn to the one who strengthens you for all things. The one who alone is the source of joy and peace and contentment. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that apart from you, all our thoughts are foolish. All the philosophies of this world are vain and empty. 
But in and through you, we can experience truth and beauty in the world. We can respond to our fears and respond to our losses and our struggles with joy. Not because we well it up uh, in ourselves, but because you give it to us as a fruit of your spirit. Lord, it, it, it's you who gives us life and sustains that life. And we see that even now as we come to the table. That we come bringing nothing but receiving the life-giving body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Him alone is salvation to be found. And in the experience of that salvation, we receive a joy and a peace that passes all understanding. Help us learn the kind of contentment that Paul calls us to here. And help us celebrate this sacrament with great joy. For we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.